The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. At AJ Products, we're dedicated to delivering intelligent solutions tailored for your business needs. Specialising in warehouse and project planning, we bring efficiency and sustainability to the forefront. To elevate your business, visit ajproducts.ie. It's Wednesday, February the 21st, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. This week sees the second anniversary of Russia's military assault on Ukraine, which set in train the biggest land war in Europe in 80 years. Over the course of that conflict, perceptions of the fortunes of the two combatants have fluctuated considerably, with Ukraine defying the predictions of many uh, by successfully defending much of its territory and indeed pushing the invaders back in the north and northeast in the first year. In doing so, it received substantial military support from NATO countries. But the war has taken a terrible toll on human life and millions have fled the country or have been internally displaced. And in recent months, the picture has darkened somewhat for Ukraine with the failure of last year's counter-offensive and the replenishment of Russia's armaments capabilities along with setbacks along the front, most recently the loss of the eastern town of Advivka last week. On the international front, uncertainty continues over whether the Biden administration's proposed package will be be approved by the House of Representatives and over all of that the possibility of Donald Trump's return to the White House. So what is the mood now in Kyiv almost two years on and what are the political undercurrents in Ukraine, a country where after all electoral politics have been suspended under martial law? To discuss all this I'm joined by Dan McLaughlin who's been covering the war from us since the very start and indeed uh, before and joins us from Kyiv. Hi Dan. Hi Hugh. I suppose to start, uh, there's so much to start with, you know, we could go back, you know, like uh, like Tucker Carlson and Vladimir Putin, we could go back 500 years for a history lesson, but let's not do that. But you had an interesting piece earlier in the week, looking back to the events of the Maidan revolution of 10 years ago, which is a good point to kind of look at this conflict as a whole, it seems to me, because the experience for many Ukrainians has been that this has been a 10-year war, not a two-year one, hasn't it? Yes, that's right. I mean, almost everyone now um, has been thinking back this week to the events of 10 years ago and that Maidan revolution when thousands of people stayed out through the winter from November 2013 to February 2014, demanding democratic reforms, demanding an end to corruption, an end to the oligarchy here that's dominated things since the end of the Soviet Union, and demanding, a, a, a crucially, a sort of pivot to the West. Um, it was all triggered when the president of the time Viktor Yanukovych decided unexpectedly to to ditch plans to sign a, a trade and association agreement, stability and association agreement with the European Union, and to kind of uh, switch back to Russia and and, and pin future hopes on Russia. Um, that triggered the whole thing, and it all ended very bloodily ten years ago this week, when uh, dozens of people were shot dead on Maidan, um, and Yanukovych fled. Subsequently, of course, within weeks. Putin went in and seized Crimea, then he started the war in Donbass, and all that led way down the line to two years ago when, when Putin escalated things into a full-scale invasion. 
So the tension which you described there, which which broke out into into violence at that point in 2014, between on the one hand, the I suppose you could say the desire of a rising Ukrainian nationalism to uh, orientate itself more towards the EU and and towards uh, towards Europe, and on the other hand, the uh, increasingly clear strategy of Vladimir Putin to reassert. Russia's dominance of what you might call the old Russian Empire. That's really what's going on here. That's the conflict between those two ideologies. Well, there had always been in post-Soviet politics in Ukraine a a very strong split between East and West, with Western Ukraine looking towards the European Union, looking towards NATO, looking towards neighbours like Poland for closer ties, for more prosperity and so on. And then the further East you moved across the country, you would find people with closer ties to Russia, closer economic ties, closer cultural ties, linguistic ties. And that was what was really playing out through different electoral cycles, going backwards and forwards. The electoral map of the country at that time was very starkly divided. A big thing that's changed over the last uh, five years or so, I think, from really Zelensky's time, um, was a, a kind of consolidation around an idea that Ukraine had to align with the West with the EU, with the uh, with NATO. And Zelensky could do that in a way, even though he was a complete political novice, because he was a man from the East, because he came from a city called Krivi Rig, which is close to the Donetsk and Lugansk regions that are partly occupied now. Um, he spoke better Russian than he spoke Ukrainian. And he came to power saying that he wanted to basically bring the country together and to end the war in Donbass, if he possibly could. He didn't make much progress with that over his first, what, three years in power. Um, And then, of course, with the full-scale war that broke out two years ago with the full invasion on the 24th of February 2022, the the rejection of Russia, if you like, and and, and, uh, this claim by including some political parties still in Ukraine leading up to the full-scale war that Ukraine would be better off uh, reforging those strong ties with Russia that had been there through the Soviet period and through the, the the period of the Russian Empire. That has been, I think, thoroughly rejected now in Ukraine. And it's very hard to imagine a kind of pro-Russian party getting anywhere near to power um, for future in future generations in, in Ukraine, not just for the years to come, but for, for decades and, and generations to come. Maybe it will never happen again. It seems clear that the, the invasion of two years ago, um, that Putin's intention was not just to consolidate what you might call the the more Russian-facing parts of Ukraine, the, the large parts of which had already been occupied by, by pro-Russian forces in Donetsk and Luhansk and Crimea, obviously, but actually to uh, to bring Kyiv under his his thumb as well, to reassert Russian dominance over the entirety of Ukraine, was it? Or maybe even to leave Ukraine as such a reduced rump that it wasn't really a, a meaningful state. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I remember being here... I mean, this exact same time two years ago and and still, you know, America was saying its political leadership and its intelligence services were, were making very specific predictions about what Russia was going to do and saying, you know, basically a decision has been made to invade. It's just a case of when. And in Ukraine, a lot of people, including Zelensky, were kind of playing that down. Zelensky was saying the narrative that Zelensky's administration has put out since is that um, they wanted to make sure there was no panic in the country, there wasn't a dash for the borders, that the economy didn't collapse and so on. But they were saying here right up to February 24th, basically, that they didn't think a, a, a big invasion was going to happen. Um, 
But the question was, you know, if it was going to come, where was it going to come? And, and I remember going out to Kharkiv in eastern Ukraine because I thought something is almost certainly going to happen out there. Um, and probably in the Donbass region as well as a, a, a bigger Russian incursion that we'd seen um, than we'd seen since 2014. As it turned out, though, of course, early on February 24th, um, forces poured into Ukraine, you know, in a huge arc, basically from northern, uh, from north of Kiev, coming through Belarus, all the way down to southeastern Ukraine, close to Crimea. And Kiev was obviously, from the start of that operation, a very, very clear target. I mean, sitting here in Kiev, we're only something like 150 kilometers from the Belarusian border. And Belarus effectively opened up its borders and allowed Russia to come through there. So Kiev was very, very clearly a target. And I think the thinking at the time was um, that Zelensky would flee, that, Re that Ukrainian defenses would collapse, Zelensky would probably flee, and the Russian forces would, would find it pretty easy to march on Kiev. Um, obviously, that didn't happen. They were driven away within about uh, a month of the start of the invasion. They went back out through Belarus, and Kiev hasn't come under threat from ground forces since then. Even though, you know, missile and drone attacks are, uh, are very common, you know, every couple of nights probably things fly close to Kiev. Earlier today, we've already had one um, air raid alert. But the air defences are very strong in the city, so there is very rarely serious damage here now. But, um, but that, I think that was certainly Russia's intention and expectation that, um, that Kyiv would fall in days or within weeks of a full-scale invasion. So the assault on Kyiv failed. I mean, that was partly a, a military failure and people will remember that footage of the, the miles and miles of these lengthy Russian columns trapped and being destroyed, in fact, by, by more agile Ukrainian forces. But it was also a failure of political analysis on the Russian side, wasn't it? That the Russians were almost believing their own propaganda, that this was a, a sort of a, 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 a puppet regime that would, would crumble very easily. And there has been this recurring theme, hasn't there, that, that Putin underestimated, misunderstood or ignored uh, the, the, the potency of, of, of the new Ukrainian nationalism. Yes, absolutely. And I don't think we'll ever really find out the full extent, maybe we'll never find out the full extent of, of, of Russia's miscalculation. I mean, what, in terms of what they were thinking inside the Kremlin before the invasion on February 24th. But it does certainly seem from, um, from what reports we have had and from the way things played out that um, Putin must, and his, his military leadership, must to some extent have been misled or was certainly under the misapprehension that Ukraine would crumble and that large parts of Ukraine and, and the Ukrainian population would welcome a Russian invasion. Um, I mean, you do wonder, you know, in, in an authoritarian regime, there is always that idea that the leader becomes increasingly isolated and that the people around him don't tell him um, anything that he might not want to hear. And it does feel like that was probably the case, that Reports were probably going back to the Kremlin that, you know, uh, Ukraine is weak internally, Zelensky doesn't have any support, that people in the east and the south at least are, are waiting for the Russians to come back. And maybe those people delivering, delivering the reports from the intelligence services like the FSB um, and military intelligence, the, the, the GRU, maybe they never thought that the reports that they were delivering to the Kremlin would ever be put to the test. And then suddenly they were put to the test and that theory completely crumbled and hasn't played out. And if anything now, even though it's a, a tough time for Ukraine on the battlefield, the determination to survive as an independent and sovereign nation is, is stronger than ever, I think.
Yeah, I want to ask you about that in a moment, but maybe just just turn briefly to the the battlefield as I mentioned at the start, the setback last last weekend in Advivka, and I'm looking at reports from the New York Times that landed yesterday evening, which suggested that that was even more serious than had been reported initially, with hundreds of Ukrainian troops captured and a and a retreat which was was not quite as orderly as perhaps had been reported at first. Are you hearing anything in Kiev about that? I'm not. I spoke to someone who was um, coming out of Avdivka at the end of last week, and they didn't mention the kind of chaotic and costly retreat that the New York Times is reporting. And certainly I haven't seen any reports and any quotes, comments from Ukrainian uh, officials to back that up yet. Um, certainly... Avdivka has been under growing pressure for several months. Certainly the, the, the only major uh, road going in and out of there was, was, was being shut down, was coming under heavy pressure um, for the last probably 10 days, couple of weeks before the withdrawal. And there was a pocket of, of Avdivka where Ukrainian troops were still present that looked like it could potentially be encircled. We'll see over the next few days, I think, whether there is any substance to those reports that you mentioned in the New York Times. They would certainly come at a very, very sensitive time because there's just been a change at the top of the Ukrainian military leadership and there are concerns about how the new head of the armed forces will run things. If this was to be the first um, major military development under his leadership, it would be um, potentially very damaging for him, potentially damaging for Zelensky at a particularly sensitive time for the country. And how should we uh, read that change of leadership? The previous commander had been in place since since the start of the invasion. By all accounts, he's an extremely popular figure, perhaps the most popular figure in Ukraine. So his replacement was not necessarily that popular. I gather his the, the, the commander who's replaced him is not quite as popular with the um, with the troops. So that's a delicate, fraught moment itself, isn't it? Especially when you add to it the fact that there are clearly problems on the manpower and munitions side with the, with the Ukrainian military at the moment. Absolutely. I mean, the Ukraine has a shortage of men. It's trying to figure out how to mobilize hundreds of thousands more men. It has obviously big questions over arms supplies. Now this bill in Congress has stalled uh, for 60 billion in fresh military aid that, that uh, the White House wants to send to, to, to Ukraine. So um, it is a difficult time. And as you mentioned there, the replacement of Valery Zaluzhny as the, uh, the top general, the commander in chief of the armed forces was a controversial thing, probably the most controversial thing Zelensky's done actually during the whole war. I mean, there have been uh, moments of tension between Zelensky and, Luz- and Zaluzhny over those two years. Um, there are reports that they disagreed over the build-up and preparations for the invasion, Zaluzhny wanting more obvious preparations to be made, Zelensky, as I mentioned earlier, wanting to, above all, keep things calm in Ukraine. And then later on, um, the first summer of the all-out war, summer 2022, Zelensky wanted to prioritise um, counter-offensive operations in Kharkiv region and in Kherson region. Zaluzhny wanted to focus more on, on another area called Zaporizhia. Um, they disagreed about that. Zelensky got his way. And actually, those operations were successful. Kharkiv region was um, largely deoccupied. About half of Kherson region was deoccupied. And those operations were led by 
um, in large part by the man who uh, has replaced Saluzhny, a guy called Alex- Alexander Sirsky, who has a lot of military experience. As I mentioned there, he had a lot of success leading the defense of Kiev and then later leading the, the fight back in Kharkiv region. But he's nowhere near as popular as Saluzhny. Saluzhny was seen as a really kind of reassuring presence through this very, very tough first two years of the war. And as you mentioned, he's hugely popular. I was looking at some... Um, recent survey figures to come out, and Zaluzhny is still, um, according to the report, that the survey that came out just in the last few days, still the most popular public figure in Ukraine with 94% of support. Um, Zelensky's down at around 65%, but Sierski's only on 44%. Um, so you see the clear difference there. Um, and there are a lot of concerns over what Sierski will do, whether he can manage the armed forces in the same way as Zaluzhny. And he's certainly not as kind of likable a presence and likable a character. Uh, he doesn't have the same kind of warmth and charisma as Zaluzhny has. So, um, yes, it is a difficult moment. And if there were to be major military setbacks, I mean, people could see Avdivka coming. If there were to be bigger military setbacks or if it was revealed that the, the pullback, the withdrawal from Avdivka was handled badly, it would be a big blow for for Sierski and Zelensky at, um, in the first few weeks, first couple of weeks only of, of Sierski's time as top commander. And is there a sense that that change in personnel, and I, I, I gather it extends right across the sort of the, the, the high command of the Ukrainian military at the moment, that there's a change in strategy that comes with that? I mean, there was a strategy pursued last year, as I mentioned, the failed counteroffensive. It didn't work. It ran into the ground of entrenched Russian defence, uh, you know, deep minefields and all the rest of that. Is there a sense that there's a move to a different, perhaps a more defensive posture or something now? Well, Ukraine definitely has to move to a more defensive posture. I don't think that's uh, that's linked to a change of personnel at the top. Zaluzhny would have had to do it, and Sierski's having to do it, to move to a defensive posture. Um, I mean, you, the Ukrainian forces say that they will attack and try to keep Russia off balance whenever possible, but generally along the line, they're having to move to a more defensive uh, setup. Um, Zelensky, even towards the end of last year, was saying this, that, uh, you know, he ordered the construction of fortifications along the um, along the whole front line, which is about runs for about a thousand kilometers in eastern Ukraine. Some people said they should have that the forces should have moved to this much earlier. That didn't happen, so they're kind of playing catch up with that. Um, and also, Ukraine's options are, are quite limited. They don't have a huge number of troops, which would give them more flexibility. They don't have a huge arsenal or or, or, or stock of ammunition that would give them more flexibility. So uh, when Sirsky came in, he said. Things that were kind of obvious, I think, that Ukraine had to be more innovative, that it had to be more agile, that it had to rely on things like drone warfare. It had to be better in things like electronic warfare to try and overcome the massive numerical advantage that Russia has. But as I say, those things were kind of obvious and and we don't really see that Sierski has a big kind of playbook that he can choose from. He's having to do the clear things. He's having to be more defensive. And um, he's having to hope that things like uh, drone production, things that Ukraine could do itself without relying so much on Western allies, can ramp up very quickly and and kind of fill some of the gap that is left by this um, the delay or the freeze on on ammunition supplies from the United States that we have at the moment. 
And you mentioned earlier the fact that mobilisation is a very it's a very politically sensitive issue in Ukraine, and you've reported on some of the tensions on, on that, including from families of, of 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 men who've been at the front for for incredibly long periods of time without uh, without leave. And I was very struck by a, a number. I'm not sure if it's right. Maybe we can confirm it. That sort of the average age of the Ukrainian frontline soldier is 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 over forty, which. Um, doesn't really seem tenable, does it? And how do the rules apply to conscripting, for example, younger men into the into the armed forces? Yeah, I've seen that figure as well. I mean, Ukraine is very uh, cagey about the, the the figures that it releases for the numbers of people it has in its army, uh, the number of pe- people it has in the reserve, and things like average age. But certainly, you know, anecdotally, it does seem like uh, the, the average age is above 40. And at the moment, one of the key things in the mobilisation bill that is passing through Parliament, passing very slowly through Parliament, actually, um, is a move to lower the... Um, the the youngest age of uh, at which people are liable to be mobilised for the army from twenty seven to twenty five, um, so that's a that's a key part of this bill. But it is a very very sensitive bill, as you said. It passed on first reading earlier this month, but I was seeing reports today that before it hits the second reading, probably sometime in the next couple of re- weeks, there are more than a thousand amendments have been suggested to this bill. So it's very, very sensitive. There are lots of different kind of parts of society that want to say in how this is put together. And it's very, very uh, sensitive for Zelensky because Zelensky has said again and again that he wants to make sure above all that this bill and the new law on mobilization when it comes into force is just and is fair and spreads the burden through all of society. Um, That's a very, very crucial thing for him. But it's difficult because he has to also balance the needs of the economy. You know, the economy is obviously struggling. Huge areas of the country have been very badly damaged by the war. Big swathes of the east, which were the big industrial area, have been under, come under occupation. Many, many thousands of, of men who would be eligible for conscription are now abroad. So, um, so yeah, we have to see how Zelensky handles it and how he finds that balance between what the army needs what the economy needs. Perhaps he will issue more of a call for Ukrainian men who've gone abroad to come back. But it's going to be very hard to bring them back to a situation in which the Ukrainian forces are struggling. This may also be an issue on which he differed with Zaluzhny. Zaluzhny said, um, we are told that Ukraine needs something like 450,000 to 500,000 new men coming into the ranks of the forces. Um, Zelensky has said several times that he thinks that number may be unrealistic. And both he and Sirsky have said uh, in the last couple of weeks that they want to focus more on how to bring people who are already on the books, who are in theory already serving in the armed forces, but haven't spent any considerable time at the front. He wants to bring them to the front and kind of maximise what Ukraine can do through rotating its current troops. Because as you mentioned there, you have some men who've been serving literally for years in eastern Ukraine. They need a rest, even if they're not injured uh, or sick. You know, they're extremely tired and perhaps demoralized. And Ukraine has to find a way to to freshen things up at a time when there's no prospect of, of the of Ukrainian forces moving forward on the battlefield anytime soon. Yeah, I'm conscious it's easy for me to say as a middle-aged man sitting in Ireland, but 25 or 27 seems like quite a high cut-off age for, uh, for conscription in the midst of a war. 
Yes, it does. Um, but but it looks like it will come down to 25 and probably not go any lower because Ukraine is very keen to, um, you know, keep its students safe, for example, and to try and keep normal life going for as many Ukrainians and many as many young Ukrainians as possible. Also knowing that, uh, as I mentioned there, that they have to... Um, they have to keep the economy going as well. If they're not, uh, if they're not studying, then they're going to be working in crucial areas of the economy. Ukraine, as, as I mentioned, there also needs to innovate. It needs to, you know, keep its young engineers, its young computer scientists here to to try and develop in other crucial areas of the war, and also to rebuild the economy wherever possible. So um, it is a very very tough balancing act, um, which Zelensky is going to have to do at a time when there isn't going to be much. Good news coming from the East over over the next weeks and months. At AJ Products, we're dedicated to delivering intelligent solutions tailored exclusively for your business needs. Spanning offices, warehouses, industries, workshops, schools and public spaces. Specialising in warehouse and project planning, we bring efficiency and sustainability to the forefront. Our offerings include versatile storage solutions and comprehensive office project design and implementation. With over 45 years of experience, we stand as your trusted partner in smart B2B solutions. To explore all we have to offer, visit AJProducts.ie and elevate your business with AJ Products. Can I ask you how how politics works in contemporary Ukraine? Because one of the paradoxes, it seems to me, is that Ukraine is fighting to preserve uh, an idea of democracy against an authoritarian assault. But by its very nature, because it's at war, there is martial law and emergency power is in place. The government, you know, elections have been suspended. So the government is essentially um, free from the normal processes of political accountability. So does political debate and is there take place and is there political division on strategy and policy and indeed just how to run the country generally? I mean as you can imagine a lot of that a lot of the the, the standard political debate was kind of um, overlaid by um, calls for unity at the start of the full-scale invasion and a focus on defending the country and protecting the country from invasion. I mean in the last couple of months, I would say, and particularly around this whole debate over Zaluzhny and and the failed counteroffensive last summer, we have seen what people here talk about as a return to politics, which means more criticism of Zelensky from the other parties that are in parliament, um, more debate in media, um, voices, for example, like former President Poroshenko, who was in power between 2014 and 2019. Um, he's been more critical of Zelensky recently. Uh, Kiev Mayor Vitaly Klitschko, who people remember from his boxing career, of course, probably, but uh, but also, you know, he's an ally of, of Poroshenko, so he's also been critical of Zelensky recently. That's another long-running um, political scrap that is starting to flare up again. So we do still have political debate. We, parliament still meets, but it is the parliament of 2019 that was elected in 2019, around the same time as Zelensky took power, minus um, one political party that's been banned that was clearly pro-Russian. A lot of its members, a lot of its deputies are now in Russia or are in hiding because they're facing prosecution in Ukraine. Some of them have been arrested for allegedly collaborating with Russia in different ways. But the rest of the parliament is still there. It still meets. There's still debate. And crucially, I think, when you think of Ukraine, 
and the way civil society still operates. The media here is still very, very vigorous. So you still have several very, very strong investigative media, uh, investigative journalistic outlets where you still, where you very often see uh, exposés of corruption in the military, corruption in politics, corruption around the whole conscription issue as well. So there are, you still get a kind of plurality of voices. You still have challenges to authority. But yeah, it does, politics does work in a strange way. There have also been more calls recently for debate, at least, over whether elections can be held in some shape or form. But the practicalities would simply be very, very difficult. What do you do when, you know, such a large area of the country, almost 20% is under occupation, when so many Ukrainians have gone abroad, when so many Ukrainians are involved in the military and security operations? How do you protect, how do you ensure security for a big national, local, you know, election, a parliamentary election or a presidential election? How do you make sure that voter lists are up to date when so many people have been forced to move from their their places of residence because of the war. So I don't think there will be any calls for, um, any major calls for elections to be held under these conditions anytime soon. But there are concerns over accountability for Zelensky. There are people who who say very openly that they fear um, a, a more, that the democracy of Ukraine, which as you mentioned is very important to it, is being undermined the longer martial law goes on. But it's very hard to see a way for normal politics to exist at a time when there are still, you know, missile and drone attacks every night, when an enormous army is still trying to invade and push forward in parts of the East. And as I mentioned, almost 20% of the country is under occupation. So it's another of these very, very difficult, very challenging, rather balancing acts that the authorities have to um, have to try and uh, try and cope with two years into this all-out war. And uh, I would have thought it, it's difficult to kind of maintain the sort of reforms which Ukrainian governments were trying to bring in. I was looking at some interesting political analysis in the run-up to the, the anniversary, which says there's sort of three, uh, this is my shorthand version of it, that there's three different forms of post-Soviet state have emerged. One is the ones that have moved fully to uh, liberal democratic um, states. So, for example, the Baltic Republics uh, would, be, would be an example of that. Another one is is a sort of a uh, corrupt autocracies, which you see in places like Russia uh, and and Belarus. And then a third, which of which Ukraine was the, the foremost example, was a sort of combination of the two moves towards liberal democracy, but where oligarchic corruption was also present as part of the political system. And that, that has been very much the feature of Ukrainian history over the last 20 or 30 years, hasn't it? And presumably part of the process and part of one of the things Ukrainians are fighting for is to move more fully towards that form of liberal democracy. But it must make it harder if there is no real democracy at at work at the moment. Yes, in some sense it does. I mean, we we mentioned the Maidan revolution at the start of this and a a huge part of that was was a rejection on the part of millions of Ukrainians of the the oligarchy that you mentioned there, a kind of corrupt, unelected unaccountable uh, elite that enjoyed complete impunity, really, and had huge, you know, had great wealth and therefore had huge influence over not only business, but but politics in the country. Um, so, yes, I mean, I, that is a, a, a very, very, that has been a very, very strong feature of Ukraine over the last 30 years. Um, what I would say is that in terms of democracy, Ukraine has has proven itself time and again, even in very difficult circumstances, um, to be a country that 
that demands a democratic process. I mean, we if we look at elections, uh, including in the 90s, but certainly through the 2000s, um, those elections were generally for the Soviet, for the for the, for the former Soviet space, uh, remarkably free and fair. And even after the um, the Maidan Revolution, when we already had uh, Russia occupying Crimea, we already had kind of a de facto occupation of parts of Donetsk and Lugansk region by by Russia, where they were controlling, funding, arming the militia that that held big parts of those regions. We still saw, for example. Uh, very transparent elections in 2014 when a new government was elected, when President Poroshenko was elected, and then again, remarkably, in 2019, in the middle of what was, albeit a relatively uh, localized conflict in the east, but Crimea was occupied, people chose a complete novice in Volodymyr Zelensky, political novice in Volodymyr Zelensky, because they saw him as a character who could take the anti-corruption fight and the anti-oligarchic fight a step further. So they elected him in 2019 and they put trust in him in another election that was that was free and fair. And the parliamentary elections were free and fair that year as well. Um, so Ukraine has been, on the one hand, strong on its electoral process, but at the same time, it has been a constant battle by civil society, um, particularly by civil society and the media here, to push back on oligarchs who simply refuse to give up their privileges. Um but the war, in a way, has given another impetus to civil society in that even though democracy has been curtailed in the ways we've already talked about, um, the demand from people to ensure that there is more fairness in society when so many people are, uh, are giving so much at the front, that, that is even stronger now, I think, than it ever was in Ukraine. So the, um, there was very little tolerance for, for oligarchs before among the major, majority of the population. In a situation where Ukraine has been fighting for its very existence in the last couple of years, I think there is even less tolerance for them now and, and will be even less tolerance going forward when, whenever Ukraine gets back to, um, to some kind of democracy that, that, that we would recognize in the West in more stable and, um, uh, and obviously safer circumstances than Ukraine is living in now. In terms of the maintenance of, of civil society and, and Ukrainian society as a whole, and as I mentioned at the outset, and as everybody knows, millions of Ukrainians left the country fleeing the war. There's more than 100,000 of them here in Ireland. We had our Minister for Integration, Radhika Gorman, in here a few weeks ago, and he was suggesting that it was possible that at some point that Ukrainians might be encouraged uh, or helped to return home if they if they wish to do so. Is there any kind of movement in Ukraine to kind of to get people home, to kind of get life back to normal to some extent in those parts of the country where it's possible, understanding that there are parts of the country where it's absolutely impossible? Certainly you do hear particularly regional officials trying to make the case for people to come back, um, particularly in Western Ukraine, which is generally the safest area of the country. Places, areas like Lviv, for example, on the border with Poland, um, they are calling for people to come back. At the same time, they've had a, a big influx of people from more dangerous areas of Eastern and Southern Ukraine. So they're still, in some ways, the city of Lviv at least is still trying to um, incorporate those people who just arrived over the last couple of years. But more and more, you know, when we when we hear talk of, of, of the new move for mobilization that we mentioned already earlier, um, and when you hear Zelensky talking about the need to 
bring fresh blood into the army, but also boost the the economy and make sure that the economy and the tax base is is strong enough to support a bigger army. You do hear him increasingly calling on people, not directly maybe, but uh, on people to come back. Maybe not directly, but at least. But he's he's definitely saying um, when he talks about fairness and justice, he's saying lots of people who could have been mobilized have gone abroad. They could be back in Ukraine, and even though. Not all of them, by any means, will have to go and fight. A lot of them could make a crucial contribution to the Ukrainian war effort by working, by paying taxes, and 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 giving something back to the country two years into the war. So it is definitely a part of the national um, political dialogue and rhetoric now, even though we're not hearing direct calls from the government for people to come back. Or, for example, Zelensky appealing to countries like Ireland, where lots of, lots of Ukrainians have found refuge in, in the last couple of years, to encourage people to go back or even organize some kind of program for people to return. We're not at that level yet, but it is definitely um, coming up the agenda and you hear it in conversations more often. And we'll hear it even more as we go through this process of, of the, the new mobilization bill going through parliament and becoming law probably in the next month or so. And in terms of Ukraine's war aims, which are very clear and have been stated from the outset, which are the recovery of the entirety of Ukrainian national territory, I presume there's no open debate or discussion about whether there, there could or should or would at any point be any any compromise or negotiation on that? No, we're not hearing any political forces saying that there should be any compromise with Russia at the moment. Zelensky's made it very clear all the other political parties have actually made it very clear that they support full liberation of Ukrainian territory, including Crimea, and getting back to Ukraine's internationally recognized sovereign borders since independence in 1991. Um, we talked a little bit there about this kind of revival of politics in Ukraine that hasn't translated into any party coming out publicly and saying, we need to come to, come to some kind of deal with, with Russia. Simply because people remember what happened at the start of the invasion. They remember places like Bucha. They remember places like Izum in the Kharkiv region. Uh, Kherson down in the southeast that was occupied for several months. They remember the crimes that were committed there. People shot dead in the streets, people tortured, um, people deported to Russia. Something like 20,000 children have been illegally taken to Russia from Ukraine during the occupation, according to the authorities here in Kiev. So they think that, you know, if there was any kind of deal, it would mean... Uh, basically accepting what Russia has done and potentially subjecting more areas of Ukraine to that kind of treatment. Because from Zelensky down, Ukrainian officials say that Russia hasn't given up on its on the war aims that it had at the very start, including the occupation of Kiev that we talked about. Um, and that any pause in the fighting, whether it was any kind of official ceasefire or just some kind of freezing of the front line, um, a temporary pause or a pause for negotiations that would just allow the uh, allow the Russian forces to to rearm, to bring more men into their ranks, to prepare for a bigger invasion. Because the Russian economy now is on a war footing. Russia has ramped up production of weaponry, production of artillery, production of tanks, productions of production of shells, drones, all these things. Um, and so there's no sign that that Russia and that Putin is preparing for peace. And so something that Ukrainians said since the start of the war back in 2014, I think still stands for most Ukrainians, that if Russia stops fighting, then the war will disappear. 
But if Ukraine stops fighting, then Ukraine will disappear. That stands for, that, that, that remains the case for most of Ukrainians. Um, that hasn't changed over the last two years. And um, I don't see it changing for any time in the near future. And yet, while accepting that, um, and it seems quite clear that the Russians have no intention of, of stopping for the moment, and from what you're saying, the Ukrainians have no intention of stopping for, for good reason, it should be said. If you look at, I'm looking at um, opinion polling uh, in the European Union, which was published uh, yesterday, and, you know, a majority of the people polled across Central and, and, and Western Europe um didn't seem very optimistic that 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 Ukraine was going to win the war by by any de- definition, and what comes with that is probably some kind of an expectation that at some point, maybe not this year, they're going to have to sit down and talk. I think it's you know, I mean, just looking at the history of of conflict, ultimately there will be some kind of negotiations, I would imagine. But you know, Ukrainians would say, well, you know, look what where we were two years ago. Who expected that Ukraine would still be standing two years into a, a full-scale Russian invasion? So the expectations of the rest of the world is something in a way that Ukrainians are used to defying and used to confounding. Um, I think if you talk to most Ukrainians, they would probably in their heart of hearts think that it's going to be extremely tough, if not impossible, to force uh, the Russian occupation troops out of all of eastern Ukraine and out of Crimea as well, um, simply when you consider the the resources that are available to the two warring sides. But what they do think is that if Ukraine holds out long enough, there may well be some change in Russia itself. This is what they're hoping for. Um, this is what they're hoping could bring about some fundamental change in relations between the two countries, an end to the Putin regime in a way that we can't foresee at the moment. So Ukraine, on the one hand, thinks we need to hold out long enough to protect Ukraine, and we need to hold out until something fundamental changes in Russia. That's what it's hoping for, and that that's what they believe in time will come if they can just hold the line for long enough, and if possible, when more weapons come, um, push the Russians back as they did two years ago. Dan McLaughlin, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks, you. And that's it for today. Thanks very much to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We'll be back with you very soon indeed. Until then, thank you very much for listening.